Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Luhoko and Figle Lingwati. In our top stories, on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, Ghana's main opposition party claim election victory, and Burundi's ruling party says it's not ready for talks with the opposition. In economics news, Fitch Ratings Agency revises outlook on South Africa's power utility, and in sports news, Nigerian Football Association resolves a bonus payment dispute with the Super Falcons. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Ghana's main opposition, the New Patriotic Party, is claiming early victory over the ruling National Democratic Party. This is vote counting continues following the general election on Wednesday. The NPP is basing its claim on the analysis it says it has done on the results sent to it by its party agents at voting stations across the country. It says its own tally shows that NPP candidate Nana Akufa Ado has won 52% of the votes cast against rival and current president John Mahama's 44.8%. Ghana's Electoral Commission has however dismissed the results, saying the process of collecting the results is still underway. The Commission's communication head, Eric Zapasu, has called for patience and calm as it seeks to ensure that the election results are credible. This is not the first time that in a matter of 24 hours, results have not been declared at the presidential level. It has always taken some time. And the Commission assured the people of this country that within a maximum of 72 hours, we will be ready with the presidential result. So there is no cause, there is no reason why in less than 24 hours, people being very conscious of the processes involved in the collation, transmitting and declaration of results should try to stampede the Commission. The International Criminal Court will hold a public hearing next April to probe whether South Africa failed in its duty in refusing to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. The announcement follows a dispute last year when al-Bashir attended an African Union summit in Johannesburg despite facing an ICC arrest warrant over alleged war crimes and genocide. The Hague Base Court says it's convening a hearing on the 7th of April. The ANC government refused to arrest al-Bashir when he attended the AU summit claiming that he had immunity. South Africa's Supreme Court of a Appeal has ruled that the failure to arrest the Sudanese leader was unlawful. The row with the ICC over South Africa with the ICC saw South Africa announce its withdrawal from the court. The governments of South Africa and Zambia have vowed to ensure the full implementation of all agreements between them. 
Currently, there are 21 bilateral agreements and memorandum of understanding signed between the sister republics. President Jacob Zuma and his Zambian counterpart Edgar Lungu have formally launched the Joint Permanent Commission for Cooperation to oversee the implementation of these agreements. Zuma says they will review all agreements to ensure success of their relations. We must walk the talk. So we've taken a very serious decision after our ministers have been meeting. We are both very ready to ensure that this commission works. We have taken a decision that we are going to review the implementation of the agreements going forward periodically. We cannot repeat that, that we have agreements that must assist both countries, but we take time to implement. So we are very much aware of that. And that's why looking at our decisions and relations today is informed by that background that we'll do things differently. The United Nations Security Council has called on all parties in Libya to accelerate the implementation of the UN-backed political agreement signed in Morocco last December. The Council also expressed deep concern over the recent escalation of violence between armed groups in Tripoli the appeal follows Tuesday's briefing by the UN Special Envoy to the country, Martin Kobler, who shared at the time that the accord stood firm but that it was stuck. The violence in Libya stems from the fall of President Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. The UN Security Council also called on all parties to immediately heed appeal to cease fighting. And finally, a major 7.7 magnitude quake has struck off the Solomon Island, raising the threat of widespread tsunami waves. The U.S. Geological Survey says casualties and damage are possible from the quake. The Pacific Tsunami Warning Center has warned that coasts in the Solomons, Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, Nauru and New Caledonia could be affected. The epicenter of the quake was located 68 kilometers west of Kirakira in the Solomon Island at a depth of 48 kilometers. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, and it's 806 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Ghana's main opposition, the New Patriotic Party, is claiming victory over the ruling National Democratic Party. This as counting continues following the West African country's general election on Wednesday. The NPP bases its claim on the analysis it says it has done of the results sent to it by its party agents at voting stations across the country. It says its own tally shows that NPP candidate Nana Akufo-Ado had won 52% of the vote cast against rival and current President John Mahama's 44.8%. Ghana's Electoral Commission has, however, dismissed these results, saying the process of collating the results is still underway. Busi Chimombe reports from Accra. The new Patriotic Party has called on incumbent and main presidential contender John Mahama to concede defeat to its leader, Nana Ukofu-Ado, Speaking at the party's headquarters amongst a jubilant crowd of supporters is Greater Accra Women's Organizer Joyce Kanoki Zampro. The Ghanaian electorate have spoken and they have voted for change. Nobody, and repeat, nobody has the mandate and he or she has the powers to change the decision of the electorate. 
Nanado and the New Patriotic Party has won this election. The NNP has urged the Electoral Commission to stop delaying the results, accusing it of bias towards Mahama's National Democratic Party. It will amaze you that the whole Electoral Commission, that you say you have, you, you have the electronic devices to transmit your results electronically, that eight, ten hours now, after polls, they are claiming they have not even one report, one declaration sheet. Is this not a, 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 doesn't they call for suspicion? However, the commission says the delay in releasing the results is due to the fact that it has received reports that there was overvoting at several voting stations. The commission says it needs to go through a process of reviewing the results from the collation centers and comparing them with confirmed and accepted results from voting stations. The commission's communication head, Eric Zakpasu, has called for patience and calm as it seeks to ensure that the election results are credible. This is not the first time that in a matter of 24 hours, results have not been declared at the presidential level. It has always taken some time. And the commission assured the people of this country that within a maximum of 72 hours, we will be ready with the presidential result. So there is no cause, there is no reason why in less than 24 hours, people being very conscious of the processes involved in the collation, transmitting, and declaration of results should try to stampede the commission. Zakpaso has also dismissed the NPP's election result claims, saying the commission is the only body mandated in law to release the country's election results. The commission has also rejected allegations that South African and Israeli intelligence officers are intercepting and manipulating election results during transmission to the National Tally Center. In a statement, the NDC has urged its supporters to remain calm and wait for the official results. Final results are expected in the next two days. That report by Busi Chimombe in Accra, Ghana. Burundi's ruling CNDD-FDD says government is not ready to sit with what they call criminals. Speaking to journalists after meeting with the facilitator of the Inter-Burundian Dialogue, the Secretary-General of the CNDD-FDD said those who are wanted must instead be brought to justice for the crimes they committed, a view not shared by Agathon Rasa, the opposition leader inside Burundi, who says there is no way of finding a lasting solution if a certain group of stakeholders are sidelined. From Bujumbura, Bernard Bankukira reports. The inter-Burundian facilitator, former Tanzanian President Benjamin Mkapa, is in Bujumbura for a three-day visit since Wednesday this week in his efforts to bring all conflicting sides around the table of talks so as to end the political turmoil prevailing the Great Lakes Nation for about 19 months now. The task still remains a hard nut crack. The government and the ruling party still insist they are not sitting with those they call criminals who kill people and whose intention is to overthrow the institutions. Everest Ndashimiye is the Secretary General of the ruling party, the CNDDFDD. Speaking to journalists after his meeting with the facilitator, he rejected any possibility of sitting with those who are wanted by the judiciary. For him, those he calls criminals are not welcome. They have to be brought before the justice. You know that there is uh, the people outside who are wanted by the justice, so that people. Imagine if you kill someone and they say, we must negotiate how to finish me. It's impossible. And they will ask everyone, between impunity and justice, what to choose? For them, there is no negotiation because they have 
case, others who are with them, we discovered that they are protecting the people who did the coup. And now what we are doing is to call honest people and to talk, ask them why they don't like to come when there is a security in the country. Outside, the, the dialogue, in internal dialogue is inclusive, but the people who are outside, we must give guarantee that they will not have any problem when they come back. But for them who, who is wanted by the justice, are not among that people because you can't negotiate with them a criminal. So I think that now everyone understands that there is honest people, there is honest political people, actors, who can come and uh, contribute to build the country and also to prepare together the election for 2020. The criminals, no, we don't, we don't uh, want them to come. What we can do with them is to bring them to the justice and the justice will decide not the government. The opposition leader, Agaton Dwasa, the leader of the strong FNL opposition wing, not recognized by the CNDDFTD government, says excluding a category of stakeholders will not allow the country to recover its stability. For him, a peaceful solution to the crisis will be possible if all those who have a hand in the crisis are involved. We get nowhere if we continue excluding each other. You cannot pretend to solve a problem when you avoid it. After all, the government has got some problems with these guys who are outside the country uh, as well as those who are inside. Uh, of course, they may say that uh, there is this uh, internal dialogue, but personally I don't believe in that because there was no engagement between, between the government side and the opposition. All what is needed is to find a peaceful solution to our crisis. Refraining some people to participate to such a dialogue is somehow giving them go ahead to continue thinking negatively toward their country. So it would be better that the government of Burundi, the CNDFDD and its allies reconsider their views and just feel that we don't have to leave the past. We have to leave the present in order to prepare a better future. As the international community and partners of Burundi have been advocating for stern sanctions against Burundi, Agaton Dwasa thinks only a strong regional sensitization of Burundian authorities would be beneficial. He calls for full regional support to the facilitator, who, according to him, is left alone. I think there is a need of a, a very, very strong sensitization of the regional leaders toward the regime in Bujumbura. Because actions, after all, we only hit those who are weak. Those guys who are in the, in the cabinet and elsewhere, perhaps, they may suffer very late than the common people, the grassroots. So it would be better that the facilitation got the full support of the, the leaders of the region because those one who have appointed the facilitation has loaded up too much on his shoulders. They may come over and tell the government of Burundi fellow government please understand that this misery of Burundians is not tolerable. Please 
give the way to these talks so that the international community can also reconsider its position. Benjamin Mukapa was expected to meet various key stakeholders on this Thursday, including the political party and coalition leaders, some ambassadors, including those of the European Union, United States, Russia and China, UN officials in Bujumbura, civil society and church leaders, among others. His intention was to engage all stakeholders for a possible resumption of a dialogue in Arusha, Tanzania, in the coming January 2017. President Benjamin Mukapa was appointed on March 2, 2016, by the summit of the East African community in Arusha to help bring around the table of talks, conflicting sides in the current turmoil in Burundi that broke out in April last year, following the decision of President Pierre Kronziza to run for the third term, prompting an unrest still claiming lives of people in the Central African nation. Efforts to end the crisis are yet to bear positive results as talks between the government and the opposition leaders have on several occasions stalled after both sides in the conflict failed to agree on the choice of mediators. Till now, the appointment of President Mukapa is yet to produce positive results. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bujumbura. The African Union Executive Council has begun a retreat at the AU headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It comprises of the Foreign Affairs Minister of African States. The Council will discuss issues that will form the agenda of the AU summit in January 2017. Koleto Anjohi has more from Addis Ababa. The African Union summit preparations for 2017 have begun, with foreign affairs ministers of member states in Africa gathering in Ethiopia for a retreat. For two days, they will discuss at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa items that will form the agenda for the AU summit in January 2017, when African heads of states and government meet. The chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dr. Nkosazan Adlamini Zuma, outlines some of the issues that will be discussed by the Council. global uh, political trends and the balance of forces in the world and its implications on the continent. On a global level, there are also many opportunities and challenges and Africa must continue to position itself in such a manner that advances its agenda. The fifth retreat will also consider the draft commodity strategy, looking at oil, gas, minerals, agriculture, so that these natural resources contribute towards job creation, industrialization, nutrition and transformation of our economies. Other issues that will be discussed at the retreat include how to reduce poverty, unemployment, promote democracy in the continent and how to enhance better governance and services by member states to its people. This is the fifth retreat of this kind. Koleto Anjohi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We broadcast from Johannesburg, South Africa, and our main aim is to provide news, views, interviews, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and the world. We broadcast in six languages, allowing Africa to tell its own stories, promoting the continuation of our continent's unique place as the birthplace of humankind. Africa, rise and shine.
Imetimu hivyo saa mbili kamili magharibi majira ya Afrika Mashariki ama saa moja kamili jioni saa za Afrika ya Kati na Kusini. Hii ni idhaa ya Kiswahili ya Chano la Afrika inayokujia katika mitabandi 16 kilohertz 17780 toka Johannesburg Afrika Kusini. Litu medisome. Kitaboni vitume batez bana komunite nkumru twa kafe kana kwa chwale mikina itungu maboshe ya memha handendendis na kamita mo program ya na yali tumesom zochitika mu afrika titola ndikusimbangani mopanda manta mosa kondera mopanda chibwibwi komanso mosa kuruvika Ndife makutu ndi maso wa Afrika. Grande compétition mensuelle sur Canal Afrique. À partir de ce mois de juillet 2007, Écoutez Canal Afrique, la voix de la renaissance africaine et gagnez de nombreux lots. Amigos ouvintes, muito boa noite. São neste momento 21 horas na África do Sul e hora central africana. Diretamente de Joanesburgo, a cidade do Ouro, aqui na África do Sul, Canal África a transmitir em língua portuguesa para a região da África Austral, numa emissão especialmente preparada para Angola e Moçambique. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 1982, 12 Basutu nationals and 30 South Africans, most of them members of the African National Congress, are killed in a cross-border raid by South African Defence Force commanders. That was today in history in the year 1982. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The Congolese diaspora has called on authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo to allow Congolese citizens to have more than one citizenship. The DRC constitution stipulates that no Congolese can keep citizenship of another country. Now, a group of MPs has written a letter to President Joseph Kabila asking him to get involved. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. 
The members of parliament who wrote the letter have expressed their concerns about the non-respect of the Congolese citizenship-related law and mentioned that the matter has been raised more than once in both the National Assembly and the Senate but in vain. They then suspected both the Speaker of the National Assembly and his colleague of the Senate have ignored the issue since so many MPs and Senators, including family members and friends, are carrying more than one citizenship. The MPs have then called on President Joseph Kabila to get involved for the law to be applied. One of those MPs is Chris Pembindule. We have realized that there is a certain complicity of people on the top of parliament on that matter and that's why we've called on the president of the republic to get personally involved for the issue to be solved once and for all. The matter should be solved indeed but Congolese living abroad are not looking at the issue in that way. They are pleading for Congolese to be allowed more than one citizenship. Members of the Congolese diaspora believe once the constitution allows other citizenships in addition to the Congolese one, the Democratic Republic of Congo will have to benefit in terms of human resources and more. So it makes a sense to fight for such a citizenship right, according to this Congolese from South Africa, Benjamin Mukoko. We are fighting for the government to change that law because we actually find that it's not important to keep that law as it is in the constitution. 20% of the people, they've changed the nationality. But even if they took other nationalities, but in their blood, they still remaining Congolese. So that push us to talk about the possibility of changing this uh, article in the constitution. Even if it's not now, but we need to start fighting now. It may be one or two years old. We can maybe reach that uh, aim to change uh, this uh, article of changing uh, the nationality doesn't lose the Congolese nationality. It's not the first time. There, you can find many countries who got this uh, disposition in the, the constitution. So it's not a new things that we will want to create, but it's a need. We can modify the constitution regarding the problem that we are facing. Many Congolese who went abroad, we are losing more regarding the human capital. In South Africa, where I'm living, we find many medical doctors, many engineers. All these people are actually South African. It's a big loss for the country. So we want all these people to come back because we need actually people to develop Congo. But where are we going to get these people to develop Congo? We need those people who are Congolese to come back. Meanwhile, the newly appointed Prime Minister Sami Bajibanga has been suspected to have the Belgium citizenship in addition to the Congolese one and most of people here have described this as an illegal appointment. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. The United Nations says desperate appeals are being made for humanitarian workers to evacuate the sick and injured from Syria's Aleppo and continued intent, amid continued intense fighting. In a call for a pause in the violence so that civilians can emerge from their shelters without being attacked, UN Special Advisor Jan Egerland says the aid team still do not have access to the east of the city. UN Radio's Daniel Johnson has more. 
Latest reports indicate that 30,000 people have now fled to government-controlled areas in war-ravaged Aleppo, UN Special Advisor Jan Egeland told reporters in Geneva. A potentially huge number of civilians are still extremely vulnerable on a fast-shifting front line where it's too dangerous to send aid workers. In a call for a ceasefire and aid access, Mr Egeland described the situation in the rebel-held east following the ongoing Syrian military and allied assault. We do have absolutely desperate appeals from inside Aleppo coming to us. It comes to us as, as individuals now, as UN officials, as humanitarians. They come from doctors, from health workers, from uh, volunteers, from civil society groups. They also talk about a very desperate situation and the need for evacuation. The UN has not been able to deliver aid into rebel-held areas of Aleppo since the 7th of July. Hopes of evacuating the sick and injured, including several hundred children, had been dashed by a deadly attack on a Russian field hospital on Tuesday, the UN special advisor said. But he added that the UN would not give up trying to deliver aid to the east of the city or on evacuations. They may even be slightly less difficult to organise than previous attempts, Mr Egland said. Earlier there has been often mixed signals on how and in what way and on what conditions evacuations were allowed from armed opposition groups and part of the civilian opposition authorities. Now they are not posting conditions, they ask for a pause and they ask for us to organise the evacuations. Moving away from Aleppo, Mr Egland highlighted that the situation is also terrible elsewhere in Syria, with Hezbollah fighters targeting Azabadani and Madaya, and armed opposition groups attacking Fua and Kafraya. In a rare piece of good news, the UN Special Advisor said that the Syrian government had agreed to a request to allow aid deliveries for 800,000 people throughout the war-torn country this month. Daniel Johnson, United Nations, Geneva. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kultanjoy Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, 800 Boko Haram hostages have been freed in Nigerian operations in the rest of northeast state of Borno. Ghana's main opposition, the New Patriotic Party, claims early victory over the ruling National Democratic Party as vote counting continues following the general election on Wednesday and the International Criminal Court is to hold a public hearing next April to probe whether South Africa failed in its duty in refusing to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you. And Malawi stands to benefit together with some countries in Southern Africa from a newly launched Southern Africa Tuberculosis and Health System Support Project, courtesy of the World Bank's $122 million financial assistance to tackle tuberculosis. The project, launched on Wednesday in Maputo, will also benefit TB-affected individuals in Mozambique, Lesotho and Zambia. George Mango has more. The World Bank Board thinks Malawi and other countries have high levels of tuberculosis and HIV co-infections, unrated mortality and increased risks of mad drug-resistant TB against a backdrop of large-scale and growing mining sectors, which are a contributor to this health challenge. The bank says the project, under the name Southern Africa Tuberculosis Health System Support Project, targets mining communities, regions with high TB burdens or HIV and AIDS, transport corridors and cross-border areas of the four target countries. Its primary beneficiaries will be TB-affected individuals and households in line with the World Bank Group's goals to support the most vulnerable as part of its thrust to ending extreme poverty and promoting shared prosperity in the world. According to the bank, Malawi and other countries demonstrated leadership and interest in working together to explore innovative ways of confronting the TB challenge to offset its impact on production. Speaking at the launch, Tim Evans, Senior Director of Health, Nutrition and Population at the World Bank Group, noted that Southern Africa is coming together to tackle tuberculosis, one of the greatest global infectious disease challenges. The innovative approaches and cross-country collaboration content in the project will have important lessons for other regions tackling TB and are also expected to provide a strong foundation to improve health and economic well-being in the region, especially among its vulnerable citizens. Accounting for a third of the world's countries with the highest TB burden, Southern Africa is at the center of the geo-epidemic of TB and HIV and AIDS. Mozambique, Malawi, Lesotho and Zambia are no exception. Recently, Malawi Government Chief Health Services Director Charles Mansambo held health initiatives that are targeting people on the ground and this is just one of them. So this is a significant leap and if we continue with these efforts we're putting together, we hope to reduce this even further. In his remarks, Mark Lunder, World Bank Country Director for Mozambique, said that the bank recognizes that TB control is a major public health and represents an economic development issue in the sub-region and therefore needs to be tackled forcefully. He said he was pleased to note that Southern African leaders have demonstrated the highest level of commitment and leadership towards ending TB. The project has three mutually reinforcing components, innovative prevention, detection and treatment of TB, strengthening the region's capacity for disease surveillance, diagnostics and management, including supporting regional learning and innovation and project management. George Mohango, Blanta. Let's go back in time to today in the year 1999. General Bantu Olomisa announced that he was abandoning a Supreme Court action aimed at forcing South Africa's ruling African National Congress to reinstate him as a member. Olomisa aimed instead to organize a national conference to consider the formation of a new party, which he ultimately did together with Rolf Mayer called the United Democratic Movement, UDM.
Namibia International Beach and Cultural Festival. Land Strand Beach, Wolfers Bay, Namibia. 23rd, 24th, 25th of December. Music Festival with international and local artists. Four-night accommodation packages and activities available at CompuTicket Travel. Main event tickets available at CompuTicket. 150 Namibian dollars, 150 rands, and 130 pula. Tickets are available at ShopRite and Checkers. Get yours today. VIP is 500 Namibian dollars, 500 rands, or 380 pula. Hashtag Xmas in Namibia. Hashtag Harambe. Cultures of Southern Africa route is powered by Channel Africa. www.culturalfestival.net. Download the app today. It's 8.36 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. An estimated 246 million girls and boys worldwide are subjected to school-related violence every year, according to latest figures from UN Women and the UN Educational and Cultural Organization, UNESCO. The forms of violence children experience range from classroom bullying through to sexual violence and exploitation. According to UN Women Knowledge Management Specialist, Philippe Lust Bianchi. School teachers and staff are sometimes among the perpetrators. Andita Lestiarini asked Lust Bianchi about the threats children face in schools. We have more than 246 million children that are subject to violence every year. That's UNESCO uh, estimates, but this is a major problem, not only because it affects children themselves. Of course, you have impact in terms of health, psychological impact, but it affects um, their attendance to school. And more generally, when it affects girls, it affects their human rights. Uh, It affects uh, um, gender equality in general. And it is a barrier also to achieving the SDGs. We've had this major agenda for 2030 that has been set. We have high targets and violence against children, violence against girls is going to prevent us to reaching this problem. What kind of incidents of violence that occur in school? Is it just teasing, bullying or physical violence? So. There is all that, as you're saying, but when we're talking about school-related gender-based violence, we're talking about much, much more than that. We're talking about sexual assault. We're talking about the worst forms of violence that you you can imagine from other students, uh, you know, between students. But we're talking about violence sometimes by teachers and by staff from the school. So people who are supposed to have authority, who puts people who are supposed to be taking care of, uh, of children and who are molesting them and who are sexually uh, assaulting um, girls and boys also in some cases. Can you just elaborate more on that about boys? I mean, people are not very aware that men and boys can uh, also be victims of violence. How often does that occur in school? We don't really have data about the, the distribution between between genders. But what we can say is we, we are addressing school-related gender-based violence comprehensively. So that means uh, protecting children, both boys and girls, from uh, any kind of harm and particularly from violence. What we are noticing, though, is that girls are much more vulnerable to violence than boys in general, but also uh, because there are um, factors that affect them even more. The the fact that we have social norms in general that are seeing uh, women and girls as as inferior, that often seeing girls are being the property of of, of men, of their parents, of uh, their husbands, etc., is conducive to more violence, is condoning more violence. In many cases, victims of violence do not go to authorities to report the crime and sometimes they also 
don't have anyone to help them stand up against the perpetrators. So what can UN women do to tackle this? Addressing violence against women and girls is, has to be done comprehensively. It has to be done through um, uh, programs that help us respond, so support survivors of violence, uh, refer them to the right services, making sure that they have access to health services, that they have access to justice, that they have access to the police. So all of these are, are important uh, elements. But when we address violence, we need to do it comprehensively and we need to address the social norms that condone this violence. We need to prevent violence before it happens. And that means mobilizing communities, that means mobilizing all individuals in societies uh, with awareness raising campaigns, with community mobilization. In UN Women, and, and we're partnering on, on this work with, with UNESCO, we're having um, a comprehensive approach to that. We're doing programs in schools, we're working with girls and boys in schools, we're working with teachers, we're working with um, the staff of, of schools. But beyond that, we're also working with communities and we're also trying to mobilize governments to have national campaigns uh, on, of prevention of violence because we think that you will not change violence, you will not address violence without changing social norms at the national level, social norms that really push and condone this, these forms of violence. Because schools are supposed to be one of the safest environments for children. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and that's why when we talk about SDGs addressing you know, violence in societies, we, we need to take a very serious attention to, to violence against children in schools because we are, not only is that uh, uh, very cruel and it, it's one of the most signi significant uh, attack on, on human rights uh, in general, but also because we're building the, 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 um, the citizens of the future, boys and girls who will go and, and, and have um, you know, productive lives and who will lead the countries of tomorrow. And if these young people are victims of violence or see our witnesses of violence, or if they are... Uh, living in a situation where you have these stereotypes that are defended, you know, stereotypes about men are like this and women are like this, then you're, you're building citizens that in the future will, will not have the, the positive social norms that help addressing uh, gender inequality, that helps also building a, a society where everybody's free of violence and everybody can live up to their potentials. That was UN Women Knowledge Management Specialist Felipe Lost Bianchi speaking to Andita Listiarini. A wide area of surveillance system known as the postcode Meerkat was launched in the Kruger National Park here in South Africa on Wednesday. The project is spearheaded by South African National Parks, Peace Parks Foundation and South Africa's Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. To find out more on this, Wandile Kalipa spoke to Ike Paitha from the South African National Parks. The launch happened last night. And this is a culmination of a lot of planning, a lot of research, and a lot of development uh, that has been undertaken in the Kruger National Park. As you know, we were the eye of the storm when it comes to the issue of rhino poaching. And it's called a wide area surveillance system, which was researched, developed and manufactured by the South Africa Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. But it was funded by the postcode from the UK, and that is why it's called the People's Postcode Lottery from the UK, and that is why it was named the Postcode Meerkat Surveillance System. Just to go ahead, this is the first time that we are using this kind of technology in a counter-poaching role in a bushveld environment. As you know, the Kruger National Park, it's a very harsh environment. I mean, yesterday when we were 
launching it, we were at around 43, 44 degrees, and it was very hot. But it's got some smart thinking in its development, which allows it to differentiate between humans and animals. And that is a key element that we were looking at. While its application is surely going to guarantee early warning and rapid response capabilities, we want to catch people who go into the park before they kill a rhino and be able to respond accurately to their positions where they are. And that is what this is going to give to us. The other advantage is that it operates 24-7 and it operates during the day and also at night. So we are taking the night away from the poachers because the modus operandi has always been that they will shoot at last light, which is just before the sun goes down, and then use the rest of the darkness or the night to travel out of the park. So we are taking that away from them with the launch of this system. So this is it uh, going to reduce the level of poaching in areas like the Kruger National Park? We're hoping that it will do that. We are hopeful because of the tests that have been done. It has shown that it can really make a difference. That was Ike Partler, media specialist at the South African National Park, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. And I'm Tabi Solohoko with an economics update. Good morning. Ratings agency Fitch has received the outlook on South Africa's power utility ESCOM to negative from stable and affirmed its long-term local currency issuer default rating at triple B-. Fitch says the revision follows the change in outlook on South Africa's long-term local currency issuer default rating to negative from stable last week. The ratings agency says it continues to assess the links between ESCOM and the government. Earlier this week, Moody's affirmed ESCOM's medium-term notes at junk. Meanwhile, economists agree that the South African economy will pick up next year. The poll predicts that the economy will expand by 1.1% in 2017. The latest gross domestic product data for the third quarter shows that the economy expanded by only 0.2%. Zimbabwe's economy has stagnated this year while its budget deficit exploded. In his annual budget address, Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa halved his 2016 economic growth estimate to 0.6% and said the budget deficit would widen to 1.18 billion US dollars. The International Monetary Fund says Namibia's economy uh, economy growth will slow to 1.6% this year from 5% last year after a contraction in the mining sector and reduced government spending. Growth is projected to temporarily weaken in 2016 to 1.6% as the construction of large mines ends and the government starts consolidating. French car maker Citroën is pulling out of South Africa. Citroën South Africa has instead announced a five-year plan with its focus uh, turning towards sister brand Peugeot. 
The automaker says the three new products will be launched next year, two of which will be SUVs. The company says South Africa is a key market in the development strategy of the brand in the Middle East Africa region. The US dollar trades at 13.55 in South Africa, 10.40 in Botswana, 9.80 in Zambia, 7.9 British pound, 9.3 euro. Gold $1,167, platinum $935 an ounce, brand crude $53.85 a barrel. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa. Hello. From the first Wednesday of this month, Agro-Africa will be coming to you at 9.20 a.m. Central African Time and on Saturdays at 10 a.m. Central African Time. Tune in to Agro-Africa and listen to stories about agriculture and its development in the African continent. We are on shortwave, internet live streaming and DSTV audio bouquet channel 802. Agro-Africa, bringing agriculture to the comfort of your home. Agro-Africa. It's 8.49 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. Now sports update this hour starting off with swimming news. South African swimmer Chad Leclaw has delivered a near-perfect swim to break his own world record in the men's 100-meter butterfly final at the FINA Short Course World Swimming Championships in Windsor, Ontario, in Canada. After making a loose start with his legs splayed apart as he dove into the pool, Leclaw powered into the lead and stayed out in front with brilliantly executed turns before finishing the race in a record 48.08 48.08 seconds. His time shattered the previous short course mark of 48.44, which he set at the 2014 World Championships in Doha. And the 24-year-old let out a bellow of delight when his time was flashed up on the screen. American Tom Shields took the silver in 49.04, with Australia's David Morgan settling for bronze in 49.31. The much-publicized bonuses pay dispute with newly crowned African women's champions. The Super Falcons has been resolved. The Super Falcon players who staged a sit-in in protest in a posh hotel in the Nigerian capital city, Abuja, are scheduled to return back to their homes and respective clubs by latest today. Former Mamelodi Sundown striker and Nigerian international Rafael Nduku Chuku says the allowances pay disputes between the Super Falcons and the Nigeria Football Association, NFA, is resolved. Their, their issue was sorted out this morning, so I'm, I'm hoping by end of today, it depends on how far each of the player is going, by end of the day or tomorrow, every player will go to his own or her own destination. Women's football continues to lag behind when compared to their male counterparts, and Duku Chuku reckons it's about time that more money is injected into the female game. Um, uh, you know, that, that issue is not only about Nigeria. It's in Africa, everywhere in Africa. We need to pay these ladies more. 
they are being confident as far as uh, football is concerned. You know, they are not being treated well. We all know. It's not, South African team, maybe they are taking care of their national team players, their female team. But I know in this Western Africa, it's not the same. I'm not, I'm not saying it's right. We need to put more in female football. You know what I mean? If it's say goes, I know what you're talking about. The whole country will be starting to welcome them. I'm sure 40% of Nigerians didn't even know they have arrived in Nigeria, which is not good. A lot of things need to change. It's not only in Nigeria. Africa for women football to grow. In cricket news, the Proteas finally had their day against the Springboks after they won the third edition of the Nelson Mandela Legacy Cup by 16 runs at PPC New Orleans on Thursday. The national cricket team had been beaten at their own game by the national rugby side. But there was no repeat this time around, thanks to a mammoth target laid down by Favre du Plessis' men. After winning the toss and opting to bet first, they amassed 252 for the loss of nine wickets in the 20 overs, with Hashim Amla leading the way with his blistering 94 off 43 balls. Dwayne Pretorias made 47 of 14 as most of the Springbok bowlers toiled, while Farhan Behardin, 25, and Duplessis, 24, also chipped in with useful cameos. And the Spa Proteas, as the national netball team is kindly known, played out a successful 2016 season, ending the year ranked fifth on the ITF World Rankings after retaining the Netball Diamond Challenge title. Mimim Teta says NSA is in talks with Jamaica as they look to feature the Sunshine Girls in next year's edition. The Diamond Challenge will grow bigger even next year. Uh, I can promise uh, the people who love netball that we have been in communication with Jamaica again and this time they really want to come. So we hope that next year we will be able to give South Africa what they've been waiting for to see the Sunshine Girls playing our spot protest here on our show. And finally with golf news, the Masters champion Danny Willett has proved a significant mover on day two of the UBS Hong Kong Open. He's shot a round of 66 to progress to six under par and that's currently tied for third. Further, with the likes of Reed, Rose, Willett and Poulter involved, they're more than capable of shooting up the leaderboard with a strong round today. They will all still have ambitions of winning. Willett says... It's been a good day. Yeah, it was, it was a nice day. We played pretty good yesterday and didn't take loads of chances. Um, and played just nice and steady again today. Uh, it's a golf course, you've got to put your ball in position off the tee. And, um, you know, you can take a few things on. Um, but as soon as you get in the rough round, you've not got much control of your golf ball. And the greens are a bit firmer this year. So, you know, that obviously then with a, with a few tight, tight pins makes it more difficult. So, um, no, we put the ball in position most, most of the day and uh, hit a lot of greens. So, although we weren't close... Um, loads, you know, we were, we, we tried to make it as simple as possible. So yeah, two uh, two good days work, I'd say. That's your sport news this hour. Africa rise and shine. Africa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. 
Ghana's main opposition party claims election victory. Burundi's ruling party says it's not ready for talks with the opposition. And the World Bank launches a project to tackle TB in southern Africa. That wraps up Africa Raz and Shine today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsu Ramagaza and Tutongoveni, technical producer Sitlin Global and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.ca.today or tweet us at Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Is Nisejo with a song titled Mambe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mambe, el gele mano que anima.